Welcome to Three Strands Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. But I'm glad you're here three weeks into this series, Rent Free, where we're kind of talking about mental health and uh, how to, how to uh, improve your mental health and what God has to say about it in His Word and um, trying to cover as many different aspects of it as we can in these four weeks. And so uh, I've been sharing this verse with you guys each week of the series. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It's kind of the verse that uh, triggered the series last year when we were planning through it. But uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that says, You must have the same attitude, the same attitude, or some translations say mind or mindset, that Christ Jesus had. And then I've shared with you each week, and I've kind of challenged you to go home and read all of Philippians chapter 2 together. But that whole chapter then goes on to describe what the attitude was that Jesus had, what the mindset or mind that he had was that we're supposed to copy or emulate or, or, uh, or act out like he did, we're supposed to take on. And I've kind of shared with you, it's three things. It's that Jesus was humble, he was obedient, he was self-sacrificing. So if you read through the rest of Philippians chapter 2 on your own, you'll read this description of Jesus and the way he lived, and it will be one, a life of humility, a life of obedience, and a life of self-sacrifice sacrificing for other people. And so uh, that's the mindset we're supposed to have. And, and I think that when you're wrestling with mental health disorders or mental health struggles, even if they're not to the level of disorder and you're just wrestling through with loneliness or worry or, or depression and you're kind of dealing with those things on an, even a smaller scale, the last thing you're thinking about is like humility, serving others, or being obedient to God. The, the most likely thing you're thinking about is like, what do I got to do to make this stop? And yet the kind of the instruction in the Bible is that we would choose to have the same attitude that Jesus had, even in that stuff, even in suffering, even when obedience is hard, even when everybody's kind of against us, uh, it feels like the world is weighing us down, that we would adopt the attitude of humility, obedience, and self-sacrifice. So that's kind of what we talked about uh, in the very first week. And then I dove into how broken we are. If you were here in the first week, we talked about how messed up we are in our minds and, and that really all of us are messed up and, and that real mental health or improved mental health really starts with recognizing how messed up we are, recognizing how, how stressed and depressed and lonely uh, and worried your brain really is, whether you've been diagnosed with something or not, we all wrestle with these issues and all have to deal with them. And so we shared that we're all broken, but that there's still hope and the hope is in Jesus. I know that sounds kind of like the church answer, but we went through God's Word and looked at some of it together that the hope comes from us owning our stronghold, owning our weaknesses, not hiding them, not trying to front like we have it all together, but just admitting and owning them, embracing the truth, not what we would call our truth, but the truth, which is Jesus, what He says, and then choosing your thoughts, that you have the power to choose your thoughts. You can't really choose your feelings, but you can choose your thoughts. And so we talked about how you choose your thoughts, and then it, that baby's pumped. <laughs> baby's excited back there, anxious. It's okay, we're talking about anxiety today, so that's okay. But, and then uh, if you were here last week in week two, we kind of dove into how the enemy tries to lie to you in your head. How the enemy tries to trick you in your mind into believing some lies that will keep your mental health poor, that will really help, that really help your mental health spiral out of control. And so uh, we kind of dug into those lies and how he attacks you. If you were here last week, you've heard these, but you kind of remember me saying, like, tries to convince you that you're helpless, that you're worthless, that you're unlovable. And then he uses a bunch of weapons to kind of amplify those lies in your head. We went through a lot of those weapons, noise and isolation and a bunch of different things. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen sometime this week. And then we ended last week by looking into God's Word and saying, but here's the weapons God says will make your mind sound. Here's the weapons God says will push back against those, attack, those attacks of the enemy on your brain. And we kind of dug into God's Word and looked at some of those. And there were things like humility and solitude, delight, community, intentionality, being grateful, trusting God. How do you do all those things? And we looked at it a little bit and then we dug super deep into those in life group and kind of tossed around some ideas and tried to get honest about our own condition and what we need to improve on and how we can improve on that. And today what I want to do is talk about anxiety. And uh, anxiety is just one 
is just one of the mental health diagnoses you could get, one of the mental health disorders you might have, but it's the most common one. And so that's why I wanted to spend like kind of a whole week just on it. And it's almost like even if you have one of the other disorders, like you probably feel anxious about having it. And so I'm just going to kind of dive into it today because God doesn't want you to be anxious. He wants you to be the opposite. In fact, John 16, Jesus said, I, I know that you're going to be anxious. I know that you're going to have trouble. But I've told you all these things. All what things? All these things that are coming. If you read John 16, the first 32 verses, what you'll find is Jesus is warning all of his followers that all this terrible stuff is on its way to the point where a lot of them are going to be executed for their faith, fed to lions, hung on crosses, burned at the stake, uh, dipped in hot oil and lit so an emperor could uh, work his garden in the cool of the evening. Like they were going to die torturous deaths and Jesus was letting them know this was coming. doesn't sound like a good motivational speech. And he gets to verse 33 and he says, the reason that I've told you all of this trauma is coming, the reason I've told you all this anxiety lays ahead, the reason I've told you all this persecution is in your future is so that you'll have peace. And then you're like, that doesn't even make sense because it actually makes me more anxious when you tell me a bunch of bad stuff's coming my way. But then Jesus gives us the basis for this peace. He says, yeah, you're going to have trials and sorrows and anxiety and depression and persecution. You're going to have a lot of trouble in this world, but you can take courage because I've overcome all of that. No matter what you're going to face, I've overcome it already. You might have to put up with it for a short time here, but I've already won victory over it. And I love the phrase, take courage. Because so often I think we feel like courage is just this thing that happens. But in God's word, courage is a thing you take hold of. You get to pick it. You get to choose courage, even when you feel fear. And that's how God wants you to live. Not with anxiety. I read this week that 31.9%, almost 32, almost one-third of American teenagers are diagnosed with anxiety diagnosed with anxiety disorder. It's one out of every three. And I think for the adults in the room, it would be easy to see a statistic like that and think to ourselves like, oh, well, this is really a kid problem. If they could just grow up, they would be over it. Until I read further in the same study and it said that 20% of adults are diagnosed with anxiety disorders. One out of every five adults. It's an us problem, really. That doesn't even take into account all those who are out there that aren't diagnosed. It doesn't even take into account all those who are out there and worrying and anxious but don't have a disorder. This touches every single person in the room. Anxiety. It's the most common of all the mental illnesses. And it's a fight. We're in a fight. I've been saying that every week because I need you to know it's not going to be easy. It's not this thing where it's just like, I come to Jesus and then all my problems magically go away. That's not what anxiety does. You think the devil's going to give up that easy? You think he's going to just be like, oh, well, they decided to follow Jesus. I'll just leave them alone the rest of their life. Or you think he's going to double down, try to wreck you. You think he's going to try to make you even more anxious. That's what anxiety does. Tries to convince you to stop fighting before the battle even starts. You think that isn't right up the devil's alley? To trick you into thinking like, I'll just give up before I even start fighting. He would love nothing more than for you to pray some magic prayer or think you're all right with God and then sit the rest of your life in a room by yourself afraid of the world, telling nobody about your faith, taking no risks for Jesus, doing nothing of courage, but just living with anxiety. He would love nothing more than to convince you to do that. I called this, this is kind of a slang word. I didn't really make it up. I heard somebody else say it, but it's really not a real word. But you can write it down in your notes if you want. Prejection. Prejection. It's like when you reject yourself before anybody else can do it. And so it's like you decide in your head that church is going to be boring before you even get here. Or life group's not going to be your scene before you even try it out. You decide ahead of time that they're going to leave you or that those people won't accept you or like you. And so you just shut it all down before you even give it a try. You project yourself. You reject yourself before anybody else has the chance to do it. And that's what anxiety is trying to get you to do. 
to shut your life down and do nothing of courage, nothing of consequence, take no risks, and do nothing that might feel uncomfortable because, hey, I know how it's going to work out already, don't I? No matter what anybody says, this is always based in feeling, not thoughts, not facts. And no matter what anybody says, they can't talk you off the ledge. You're going to hunker down and hide from the world because anxiety and everything inside of you is screaming, they're going to hate you. It's not going to go well. You're not going to enjoy it. It's not going to work out in the end. It's not going to get you anywhere you want to get. Just go and hide. Isn't that what anxiety does? Doesn't everybody in the room who's ever felt anxiety or has an anxiety disorder know that that's what they feel and hear screaming inside their head when it's time to get up and go to work or it's time to make a commitment to serve Jesus or it's time to love somebody in your neighborhood? You'd rather just hide in your garage. You'd rather just go back in your own house and escape into your TV. You'd rather just eat a bunch of junk food and just condemn the rest of the world as being haters. Don't press in. Don't take a chance. Just shut it down. That's what anxiety does. It keeps you stuck, paralyzed, really afraid. Afraid to trust that anything God says is actually true. You already know it's going to work out the opposite. But God hasn't called you to live and walk by fear. He's called you to live and walk by faith. That's what a Christian does. You still have fear. You just choose to take courage in spite of the fear. Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines what faith really is. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Some people out in the world would say, you just have faith. That just means you believe in fairy tales. No, it's not fairy tales. It's a hope I have for the future that's based on evidence I can see right now. That's what faith is. It's not blind faith. Some people say I just have blind faith. I don't have blind faith in the Lord. I have evidenced faith. I believe in the Lord because he's shown me the evidence. Some of that is my own experience where I've seen him work in my life and do amazing things. Some of that is the proof all throughout history that his son came to earth and proved who he said he was and died on the cross. For me, he said, but didn't stay dead, had enough power to defeat death. And so I can take courage and know that if he can defeat death, he can defeat my anxiety. If he can come back from the dead, surely he can deal with my worry. And so I can choose faith over fear. I don't have to live this kind of messed up version of faith where I'm always afraid and always choosing to hide. That's really what anxiety is, right? It's like a, like a corrupted faith. It's this kind of our own messed up version of faith where real faith gives you confidence that God can be trusted. Anxiety screams in your head that he can't be trusted. Faith says he's working it all out for good and anxiety says it's all about to fall apart. Anxiety always leads you to defeat because it convinces you to give up before you even start fighting. But David wrote this in Psalm 118, verse 6. He wrote, The Lord is with me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? If you go through and read all of Psalm 118 sometime on your own, actually almost anything that David wrote in the Old Testament, it almost cracks up. You almost think David was bipolar. Like his life was nothing but like highs and lows. And sometimes, even within the same song that he wrote, you'll see these like drastic highs and drastic lows where he's like, my enemies are all around me. The walls are caving in. Everything feels like it's constricting me and weighing me down. But I will choose to trust in the Lord. I will choose to make my hope in heaven. And if you read Psalm 118, it's this same idea. He's like, my enemies are everywhere. They're pressing me on every side. But the Lord is with me. And he is for me. What do I have to be afraid of? What can these people even do to me? And so I will sing to the Lord. I will declare his greatness out loud. Like He's like in these low, low valleys. Valleys that are lower, really, than most of us can even comprehend. Valleys where like, uh, everybody's trying to kill him, including his own children. Valleys where like he, he's, he's so stressed and so anxious, he sees no way out but to commit murder. And yet he's able to take courage in these songs. Man, if you battle with anxiety, the book of Psalms is like such a great book to read through. 
Because you get these extreme highs and extreme lows. And how do I wrestle with these real feelings that, that are really trying to lie to me? Jesus said it this way in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill the body or your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Why are you so afraid of everybody else and everything else? Don't you know the only person to be afraid of is God? If we were just a little bit more afraid of God, I mean like afraid enough to believe what he says is true. Afraid enough to actually do what he says, even if I don't want to. Afraid enough to actually follow his instructions, even if everything inside of me is saying to do the opposite. If we were just a little bit more afraid of him and a little less concerned about what everybody else thinks of us. I mean, what could they do to us? What can they do? It's where people in history have found the courage to literally proclaim the name of Jesus while their head's about to be cut off. And we're worried like somebody won't like my post. You can take courage. You can choose it. And what I want to do today, just kind of simply, is I was reading this book a few months back, and um, you can look it up on your own sometime if you want. I can't remember the name of the book. You can ask me later if you want to know. But from a guy named Dr. Greg Jantz. And he listed three things in this book that really feed anxiety. And I read through them, and I'm going to give you those three. The first two sound an awful lot like the things we taught last week, okay? And so I'll kind of just fly through those and repeat them for you. The third one's kind of a new piece we haven't really touched on yet, and I want to spend um, a chunk of our time on that one this morning. But let me give you the first two, and we'll get to that third one and spend some time on it. You see if these sound similar to what we've already talked about in this series. The first one that feeds anxiety, he said, was self-talk. Self-talk. And uh, nobody talks to you more than you do. Right? Is that true? Nobody talks to you more than you do. And often the messages that you send yourself are not super healthy. There are a lot of, in fact, most people are the more critical themselves than anybody else is. You probably think less of you in a lot of ways than anybody else thinks of you. A lot of times you're tempted to think you're uglier than anybody else really thinks you are. That you're not as intelligent. Everybody else probably thinks you are. You just kind of beat yourself up. You're really your own worst critic a lot of times. And if you're not beating yourself up, you're doing just what we mentioned last week, and you're giving yourself a lot of these what-if questions in your head. What if it doesn't work out? What if they leave me? What if everything I'm thinking is going to happen doesn't go this way? What if I can't pass the test? What if I'm not smart enough to get this degree? What if I don't really have it all figured out? What if, what if, what if? And we psych ourselves out, and we cause anxiety to kind of spiral out of control, self-talk. Maybe if you're here and you struggle with anxiety, you can kind of pinpoint that in your life. You're like, yeah, there are a lot of times where it's like I have this thought come to my head and then I just let it go and it just spins out of control. And, and before you know it, I'm worked up into this frenzy of anxiety and it, it just came from like this one passing thought. Maybe you can see that in yourself. The second thing he gives that feeds anxiety is private assumptions, he calls them. Private assumptions. Private assumptions, these are like our strongholds we've talked about the first few weeks. The, the, the mental things in our head that become like so ingrained in the way we think that they become our identity. We've told ourselves the lies so many times that we just believe that that's what we are and that's who we'll always be. These assumptions are rarely, if ever, based on the truth. They're always based on how I feel. And no facts will ever change the way you think. Because you've already made these assumptions privately inside of your own heart, inside of your own mind, and you've fully bought into these lies. He breaks down these private assumptions. I'll give all four of them to you. He gives four of them. And you just tell me if it sounds similar to like what we talked about last week. He says, assumption number one is that I'm not worthy. I internalize that. I believe it. And it fuels my anxiety. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to receive this good thing that's coming my way. I'm not worthy to do anything better or beyond what I'm already doing. In fact, I don't even know if I'm worthy to do the stuff I'm currently doing. I'm pretty unqualified. Assumption number two, he says, is I'm not able. I'm not able. Even if you gave me a position, even if you gave me some worth, even if you set me up for success, I'd probably fail because I don't, I don't have the, the requisite skill set to make it happen. Assumption number three that we buy into. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Those are pretty connected, I think, two and three, but 
I'm not enough. I'm always going to fall short. And then assumption number four, he says, I'm alone. I'm alone. Doesn't that sound similar? Last week when we kind of dug in and said like, oh man, Satan's whispering these lies in your ears. Lies to make you think I'm helpless, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable. Pretty similar thoughts, right? And our minds just embrace these assumptions. We start to believe them. They become our identity. All right, here's the third one he says that kind of fuels or feeds anxiety. And this is the one we're going to talk about today mostly. He calls it faulty belief systems. Faulty belief systems. God's belief systems are recorded for us in his word, the Bible. But that always takes a back seat to the real God of my feelings when I'm battling anxiety. So what I want to do is I want to give you um, five of these faulty belief systems that he lays out and just invite you today to be honest about your own mind. Nobody's going to grade you. I'm not going to ask you about it. just want you to be honest with yourself. Do you see any of these five faulty belief systems? Because I looked at the first two and I thought, I thought the way I talk to myself, if somebody points that out to me like this, I can kind of see that in myself, how I beat myself up, I'm hard on myself, or, or I kind of talk myself into like cowering out, not taking a risk. I can see that. And these private assumptions, I, I get that. When you talk about like feeling worthless or feeling helpless or feeling like you're not enough, like, yeah, I can, I can relate to those feelings pretty easily. But when I got to this one, these faulty belief systems, these are hard to see in yourself. They're hard to see. So take an honest look at yourself. Is it possible that your anxiety is being fueled by a faulty belief system that you've embraced without even realizing that's what you've been doing? They're the opposite of what God says to embrace. But let me, let me give you these five, and then we'll just talk about them a little bit. Here's the first one. He calls it personalization. And, and we're really going to be digging into all five of these in life groups this week. So if you're not in a life group, I want to challenge you to get in, get some help for your anxiety, like dive deeper into this study. But personalization, this is where everything in your life gets filtered through the lens of yourself. You become the center of your universe. And when I'm the center of my universe, anxiety is inevitable because I actually can't control a whole lot going on around me. But I start to ask myself questions like, will this make me happy? Will this get me further ahead in life? And every decision I make is based on personalization. Am I going to benefit from this? This is the opposite of the Jesus mindset from Philippians 2 where we said his life was one of humility and self-sacrifice. He wasn't super interested in what would make, make his life better or richer or more successful, was he? But how easily we buy into this faulty belief system and the decisions we make about where to go to school and how to spend our money and where to live and who to marry are all about, will it make me happier? Which is going to fuel your anxiety because you can't control any of those things. So then when they don't pan out exactly how you wanted them to pan out, your anxiety starts to spiral out of control and you don't understand it because after all, aren't I just supposed to be trying to get happy in this life? Isn't God trying to make me happier? And so you become the center of your universe, personalization. Here's the second faulty belief system, control. Since everything out there has the potential to hurt me, I must control everyone and everything around me. Because if I can control them, then I can protect myself from getting hurt. And so by any means necessary, whether it's avoiding people, avoiding situations, manipulating, placating, blaming, being passive-aggressive, using logic, whatever it takes, you're going to use whatever means at your disposal to control everyone and everything around you because as soon as you lose control, things start to go bad and your worry gets out of control. You believe in Murphy's Law, right? That anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Everything's a danger. And so it's your job. If your life's going to be healthy, you've got to control it. But since you actually have so little control over life anyhow, you suddenly start to feel more anxious the tighter you grab control. It has the opposite impact on your life. And you're controlling everyone around you and you're pulling strings. And all of a sudden you start to feel super tired. It's hard work trying to control all the people around you, especially all the people who are flawed and don't ever seem to get it right. 
That's all of us, in case you didn't get that. It's hard work to control everybody when they don't want to do what you say. It's hard work to control every circumstance when they're all out of your control. And so you get exhausted and your worry just increases. Faulty belief system number three, perfectionism. Hey, since controlling everything makes me safer, I'll go to perfectionism, which is the ultimate control. It's like I'm taking it to another level. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody I just love excellence and I just like attention to detail. And I'm just going to like preach your choir thing on you this morning here. Like this is the hardest one for me. It's like oh, I'm like a super perfectionist. I can't handle it. Like I have trouble handling like disorder or half-hearted effort. Or, like, and, and it's like if I can just make everything perfect, then I'll feel normal inside. But we live in such an imperfect world. It just just drives you crazy. Leaves me, I can speak personally on this one for sure, leaves me feeling like I just want to be left alone. Can't handle being around all these stupid people anymore. Right? I know you're supposed to be godlier than that. Like, sorry, I'm not godly. I hope he just testifies. Is that you or me? Saying that's you or me? That's you too? (laughs) But it's like, and then you just want to be left alone. And then when you actually are alone, and you think everything should be better now because I'm left with the only perfect person I know, right? Which is not true either. Then you actually feel worse somehow, even when you're alone, because now you feel like, all by myself, nobody even loves me. This is ridiculous. Why can't I just find one person who can raise their game up to my standard, you know? And you're left all by yourself, feeling even more anxious than when you started. Perfectionism. Now we're going to kind of shift gears to the other side of it. And number four, he says, um, faulty belief system, he says, feeds or fuels your anxiety. He calls it dependency. This is where you go the opposite approach. And you just want somebody else to tell you what to do. You're so anxious about every decision, you can't pull the trigger on any of them. So you're just looking around for anybody who take the helm, and you're looking to somebody else to give you all their confidence and all their calmness. And this could be you. If you're the person, you know how many boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives get into fights all the time about like, where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? Where do you want to eat? Just make a decision. It's like, and nobody can make a decision? It's like we can't even decide where we want to eat? It's like I just want somebody else. Just tell me. I just make decisions all day. Just tell me what to do. And we're completely dependent on another person to give us all the answers and all the direction in life. The problem with that is you don't know one person who's good enough to get that right all the time. And no matter how good the person is, even the best people make the worst God. And so when you're dependent on your spouse or a girlfriend or a friend of yours to call all the shots for you, eventually they're going to let you down. And your anxiety, that's just crazy. Didn't see that coming. How could they have failed me so big time? Because they're a person just like you. The fifth one he gives, faulty belief system that feeds or fuels your anxiety, is the faulty belief system of affirmation. This is on that same side. But this is where you're looking to other people for their words and their encouragement and their thoughts. And it's their words and their facial expressions and their emotions and their thoughts that determine whether or not you're going to have a good day or not. Goodness, how many people are living in marriage like this? If my wife's having a bad day, then my day's awful. I can't possibly take courage and do anything of value or have any joy in my life if my husband's upset. I need somebody to validate me. I need somebody to encourage me and congratulate me on everything I do. And don't you dare criticize me because your words hold so much power over me that if you criticize me, I'm just going to run and hide. And so everybody in your life knows this is you, and they all walk on eggshells around you, afraid to say anything. Because if they criticize you or give you any constructive feedback, you'll just shut down and hide. This could be you. If nobody in your life ever confronts you on anything you do that's wrong, this is probably you. They're all so afraid that if they say anything, they'll break you. Because we're completely dependent on them for our affirmation. I don't know. If you're being honest with yourself, can you see any of those five in you? 
Is there one that you're believing or embracing that's really causing your anxiety to spiral? The rest of our time today, what I'd like to do is just show you from God's Word how you can calm your anxious mind. How you can do the opposite of some of those things. How you can take what God's saying in His Word, put it into practice in your life, and see your anxiety lessen. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if we could go home today and be just a little less stressed? A little less worried? And that's what we're going to try and do today. Let me give you the backstory. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 the rest of the time. I'm just going to read it to you in a little bit, part of it. But in Matthew chapter 6, let me give you the backstory. Jesus is teaching a bunch of his followers. And he's giving them a bunch of practical advice for life. And he's covering a wide range of topics. He's talking to them about how to handle their money, how, how to be in relationships, uh, when to judge people, when not to judge people, um, how to find success in this world and what is considered greatness in the kingdom of heaven. He's covering a lot of real life topics for them. And then he gets down to, I think it's like, uh, I can't remember, maybe verse 19 in chapter 6. And he gives what we call the treasure principle. If you never read the treasure principle, who wrote that? Uh, Randy, Randy Alcorn, I think is his name. Can't remember now. The treasure principle is based on this verse where Jesus says to his followers, don't store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where it can fade away and be destroyed and eaten and go, go, go bad. But instead, store up all your treasure in heaven where moths can't eat it, where rust can't destroy it, where it'll never break down. In other words, like, don't invest all of your money in stuff here on earth that's just going to be left behind when you die. Instead, invest all of your money in the kingdom of God. You can't take any money with you, but you can send it all on ahead to heaven. It can't all be waiting for you in eternal blessing. And that sounds like we're talking about money, and we are just for a second, because Jesus is about to use money as the first of a few examples of things that make us worry. Now, if you're in the room and you've never felt worry or anxiety about money and you can't relate to this, hang with me for just a second. That probably means you've never had to pay your own bills. Okay, like somebody still always just paid everything for you. Because once you have to pay all your own bills, then you are introduced to this whole issue of anxiety when it comes to your finances, okay? So Jesus is using this as an example. He's gonna say, don't, don't waste all of your money on stuff that's going to be left behind when you die. Instead, invest all of your money in stuff that can never die, in stuff that will be sent on to heaven ahead of you, into people's lives, into making a difference for people to know Jesus better, for people to understand God's kingdom, right? And then he gets down to verse 24. And listen to what he says. Now, he's still talking about money. But he's going to kind of shift in just a second. Listen to what he says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. That's a good one to underline right there if you're an underliner. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Or some translations say mammon or really material stuff. It is impossible to serve God and serve stuff. No matter what it is. It sounds almost like he's saying your loyalties are divided, like we talked about two weeks ago. It sounds almost like he's saying you're a double-minded man. It's impossible. Listen to what he says in verse 25. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Now he's going to transition away from just money to about anything in life. Okay? This is why I'm telling you not to worry, not to be anxious about anything in life. Why? Why? Why, Jesus? Because all the stuff you're investing in here, it's worthless. Don't invest in it. Don't waste any effort or time on the stuff that's going to fade away as soon as you die. Think about it for a second. No matter how great of a person you are, no matter how big of an impact you've made on your world or your family, who's going to remember you in a couple generations? Even the most famous people in history, let's talk about someone for like Julius Caesar. Does he make a difference in your life today? George Washington, he was a great guy, right? Just a couple hundred years ago. What difference does he make in your life today? Even the greatest people in history, a few generations later, what do they have to show for it? 
What's going to be left behind of your legacy? But you can send all of it on ahead. None of this stuff really matters. That's all that really matters up there in heaven. So invest everything you got. That's exactly why I tell you not to worry about all of this stuff in everyday life. Whether you have enough food to eat or drink to have, whether you have enough clothes to wear. Now, I get it that nobody in America or most people in America, you're not worrying about how, where you're going to get your next meal. I get it. I'm definitely not, you can tell I'm not worried about where I'm getting my next meal. I'm good for about three or four meals before I start to have a problem. But like, nobody in our country is really thinking about this. But in their country, at that time, they were. Where am I going to get my food tomorrow? And over half the world today is thinking about that. It's going to take effort and work on my part to get a meal today. We're not thinking about that. Our worries are other things. But he's saying, this is why I'm telling you not to worry about everyday life. We might not say I'm worried about food, drink, or clothing. We might say I'm worried about that test. I'm worried about that raise. I'm worried about that relationship. I'm worried about X, Y, and Z that's coming up in my schedule. We worry about different things, but they are still everyday life, are they not? And Jesus is saying, stop worrying about those things. Isn't life more than those things? And everybody would say it is. Isn't life more than food? Isn't your body more than clothing? Isn't life more than your job? Isn't your life more than that boyfriend or girlfriend? Isn't your life more than sex or alcohol? Isn't life more than your degree? Isn't life more than your team? Isn't life more than your sports ability? Isn't life more than your hobbies or that movie? Isn't life more than all that stuff? Everybody would agree, and I know that, because nobody, when they're 90 years old, laying on their deathbed, says, oh, if only I could get out of this bed and have some more sex, then my life would be complete. Nobody says that. Nobody laying on their deathbed says, like, oh, I'm about to die. If only I had 20 more in my wallet. Nobody cares about that stuff at the end. None of this stuff matters in the end. All the stuff that we stress and worry about now, Jesus is saying, isn't your life more important than that? Isn't there more to you than that stuff? Now listen to what he goes on to say. He's going to give us some examples. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. But your heavenly Father feeds them. Doesn't he? And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries, here's that word again, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And, and why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry. Here's this idea again. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts, the brains. This is what the unbelievers think about. This is their mental health. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. And he says it again. So don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Oh man, there's so much in there. Let me sum it all up for you with a quote that A.W. Tozer said. Put God in his rightful place and 1,000 problems are solved all at once. That's what Jesus is saying. Make it all about the Lord and everything else will line up and all the other anxieties will fade away. I, I need a couple of people to help me. I, I asked, will you come help me for a second? And uh, Emily, will you come here for a second? I don't want you to think I'm calling them out. I actually asked them ahead of time if I could, if they would help me. So if you're like afraid I'm going to call you out some week, I won't really do that unless you're Michael Crawford, but he's not even here today. So, all right. Can, can Lily, can you stand over here? I don't want you guys close to you. I don't want you fighting. No, I'm just kidding. So what kind of illustration is this? Can you, um, okay, for those of you who don't know, this is Emily Bird. She's awesome. She get to know her. She's really cool. 
right? Yeah, Carson's like, yeah! <laughs> okay, and this is Lily Smith. Also really cool. Chill, very chill, okay? So can you guys, I just want you to take that and just hold that in that hand, just like that, and hold that one up in that hand. Just hold it just like that, and you do the same thing with that. Okay, so uh, what, I, what I've got for you, I want you to see this so you can understand it, okay? What I've got for you here, okay, is a bunch of birds and a bunch of flowers, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, okay? This is for the deep thinkers in the room, okay? Uh, my artwork was so good in the Grow Your Faith group that I put some of it into practice. See, I actually didn't draw these, Megan. I can't draw that good. It'd be like scribble if I did it. I printed those. But, so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, a bunch has to be like at least three. Okay, it'd be more than two, and I've only got two. But you'll, you'll get it later if you think about it. That's a bunch of birds. That's a bunch of lilies, okay? So stay with me. All right. So you understand what? All right. Is that like over? Is that? Okay, everybody got that? Okay. Bunch of birds, bunch of lilies. Now, just put those behind your back just for a second. Okay, so what Jesus is saying, put those behind your back just for a second. What Jesus is saying is, look around you. There are some examples on my planet of things that should remind you how much God cares about you and how much he's willing to do for you. And the examples he gives, go ahead and hold yours up, are birds, okay, birds. He says, look at the birds. They, they don't think. They don't plan. They don't store anything up. They don't go hunting, right? They're, they're not very intelligent, right? That was love in this. That was love. And yet somehow, God makes sure they eat every day. Don't you think he cares about you more than a bunch of birds? Don't you think he'll take care of the things you need tomorrow too? Then he's like, hold these up. He's like, Look around. If you, if you have a, like a kink in your neck and you can't look up, look out. And you'll see all these lilies all over the field. And he's like, they, they don't think. They don't reason. They don't even dress themselves. Right? They don't put on, they, they don't even pick out their outfit each day. They're not very bright. And they're disposable. And yet every single one of them looks beautiful. Somehow God has figured out a way to clothe them all to look beautiful. Don't you think he cares more about you than a bunch of lilies? So you're worried about all these things in everyday life. And God is saying, look around at the whole world I've made. Everything in creation is crying out to you, God's got your back. He's got this one. He's going to control it. He's going to take care of you. He's going to give you hope and peace. He's going to dress you and feed you, take care of that job, build that relationship, give you enough money, calm your anxious heart. All you got to do is look around and you'll see the reminders. They're everywhere. Can I have those? That's all I needed. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm clapping for them. Yeah, we're good at that. We're good. <laughs> Thank you, Lily and Bird. <laughs> You get it. You get what he's saying. So let me just give you, we're not going to go back through that whole text, but let me just go through it for you. I'm going to outline for you the things I pulled out of that text. They're like, this is what God is saying should help your anxious heart. This is how God is saying to wind your anxiety down. See if there's one that's missing for you. You ready? Here's the first one he says in verse 24. Serve only God. Serve only God. So get honest with yourself. Is there something competing for God in your life that gets equal devotion? That gets your attention? You say, I don't understand. Don't I have to go to work? Don't I have to prepare meals? Don't I have to uh, love my spouse? Don't I have to do all these other things that don't seem about serving God? No. That's not the answer you expected to hear, is it? You ready? No. Every single decision you make, if you're following Jesus, every single decision you make should start with something like this in your head. How will this make me more like God? How will this help me serve him? And I don't care if it's your job or the school you're picking or the team you're thinking about joining or the person you're thinking about dating or marrying. The question ought to be, will that make me serve God better? I remember like when we were thinking about buying our house. Some of you have been to our house and I love our house. I think it's like an awesome house, great house, all that. I, I don't think it's like, you know, like, like we don't live in Bel Air, you know what I mean? But like, I don't know. It's just, like I like our house, but I just think it's like a regular house. But I remember when we were buying our house and Stephanie said to me, um, because the job she's in, she's kind of like, 
you know, with a lot of people who are kind of like lower income, okay, is, is a kind of way to say it. So she does like some mental health stuff, and, and she's with a lot of people who are lower income, and, and, and that's okay, but, but she, I remember when we were thinking about buying her house, and she was like, I don't know if we should buy this house if we're going to pastor here. Because like it might come across to some people like we think we're something like better. You know what I mean? Like it's too big almost. Like, it's, you know, thankfully it's there because now we got a man living in the basement. But, but like well, I remember she was thinking that when we were looking at the house. And I, I remember saying like, let's just pray about it. And, and, and then as we go through this process of deciding if this is the house we want or not, let's pray that if, if all the ducks line up and God makes it work out, that we'll use the house to the best of our ability to serve him the rest of our life, right? And so when you're looking to buy a house, is it like, hey, if we buy this house, I could host a life group. I could invite people in. I could take in somebody who doesn't have a place to stay and give them a place to stay for a month. I could have meetings here. I could meet with people all the time. I could, I could leverage even my property for Jesus, right? I'm about to take a new job, and they're going to pay me a dollar more an hour. And for so many people in the world, the decision, like, oh, I'm taking that job. They're paying me a dollar more an hour. It's all about my everyday life and my stuff. What if the question was like, will that job help me serve God better? Because that's what I want, Lord. Put me in the job that'll put me around the most people that I can impact for you. Put me in the job that has that one person that you want me to share my faith with. That's the job I want. Forget about the money. Forget about the clothes. Forget about the stuff. Serve only God. Every decision. Will this relationship make me more like Jesus or less like Jesus? That's the question we should be asking. Not do they smile cute. Are they in good shape? Do they make me feel warm and fuzzy inside? That's all garbage that leads to divorce. Is that person going to make me more like Jesus or less like Jesus? That's the question to ask. Serve only God. Here's the second one I pulled out. Know your value. He's like, look at these birds and these flowers. You're more valuable than them. Look how well he cares for them. You're way more important to God than them. Don't you understand how valuable you are to him? You're his most prized possession, the apple of his eye. He would do anything for you. Here's the third one I pulled out. Remember God's control. He's got your back. He's in control of all of it. What worry, how many minutes can worry add to your life? Jesus is like, none. God's in control of all of it. Here's the fourth one I saw in there. Believe God's provision. There's nothing that's too hard for God. There's no anxiety you have that God can't be the solution to the problem for. God can solve any of it. You don't understand. I'm about to get foreclosed on my house today. God can fix it. You don't understand. The doctor told me I have a month to live. God can fix it. And even if he doesn't, I still have it all waiting for me in the future. I'm storing it all up in eternity. I don't got time for anxiety because I'm busy trusting God's plan for my life. Here's the fifth one I saw in there. Build God's kingdom. I want you to know I have like a mission statement for my life. I don't know if you have that. It'd be a good thing to do if you don't because a lot of us just kind of wander around aimlessly. My mission statement is super simple. I keep it to three things. Outside of a little bit of resting because God says I need to rest. Um, and so outside of that, I try to keep my life really to th these three things. You don't find me doing a whole lot of things other than these three things, but I'm trying my best to know Jesus better, to love my family more, and to build God's kingdom passionately. That's it. And I don't have time for anything else. And if I'm doing something, I'm asking my question, is this going to help me to know Jesus better? Is this going to help me to love my family more? Is this going to help me to build God's kingdom with passion? That's it. I don't know what your mission statement would sound like, but I want to build God's kingdom. Seek his kingdom first, and everything else will fall into line. And here's the last one I saw in there in verse 34. Live in the present. Just to quote the great theologian, Master Ugwe. The past is, a the past is history. Tomorrow's a mystery, but today is a gift. That's why they call it present, right? Yeah, Master Ugwe. If you haven't watched Kung Fu Panda, you can check that out later. Live in the present, he says. Tomorrow's problems are big enough for tomorrow. Stay in the moment. Stay in the moment. Just you don't have to trust Jesus for the rest of your life. You just have to trust Jesus for the next moment. And then when you get to that moment, trust him for the next moment. Then the next moment, then the next moment. That's it. 
It's just one foot in front of the other. And sometimes it's going to be two steps forward, one steps back. And sometimes, to be honest, it'll be one step forward and two steps back. But I'm just trusting Jesus with each step, living in the moment. It's time to start thinking about what you think about. Let me just close with Philippians chapter 4, something I read earlier in the series, starting in verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Everybody who's anxious would like to feel like that. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. Take courage. Fix your attention. Look to God. Do what he says. Get all of your focus on him and what he says to focus on. One final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace is at your doorstep today. If you will serve only him, if you'll just remind yourself how valuable you are to him, if you'll just remember he's in control of all of it, if you'll just believe that he's got your back and is going to provide for all your needs, if you'll just spend your time building his kingdom, and if you'll just live in this moment and not get so worked up about what's coming tomorrow, the God of peace is at your doorstep waiting for you. Anxiety is trying to convince you to stop fighting before it even starts before the battle even begins. But Jesus is saying, I think in Matthew 7, 7, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and it'll be given to you. Keep on asking, and God will give it to you. Keep on seeking, and you'll find it. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. Jesus says, because the one who seeks finds. The one who asks receives. The one who knocks will find Jesus on the inside being like, I got this. Anxiety, you can kick it out today. You can calm your anxious mind. God's way. You just can't do it your own way. So just be real with yourself. Which one of those pieces of Jesus' prescription for dealing with worry do you need to adopt? Start putting into practice in your life today to drive out anxiety. You can choose. You can take courage. It's yours for the taking today. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for the amazing truth of your word. Thank you that we're not left alone, but that you love us and have our back. Thank you, God, that you love us more than the sparrows, that you love us more than the lilies of the field, that you love us more than creation, that you love us so much that you're going to take care of all of our needs, that you're going to give us peace and hope and a future in heaven. You're going to give us all that, that no matter what we face, you've already overcome it. God, give everybody in the room the courage it'll take to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking until you give them the peace of heart and peace of mind they need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.